Well, we've started with an introduction two weeks ago to the seven letters in the chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation. Seven letters to seven churches, not the only churches. There were other churches there. In the book of Colossians, it mentions not just Laodicea, but Hierapolis as well. There were other churches other than those written to, but we have seven letters to seven churches in seven cities of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, we would call it. But the first letter written by John, the message given from Christ to John, is written to Ephesus. Probably it was the nearest of the churches that are mentioned. It was also the church that John, who wrote the letters down from Christ, knew the best, because he probably was a pastor there for a time. But the, the verse that stands out, and our title this evening is based on this, Leaving Our First Love. Leaving Our First Love. If I read verses 4 and 5. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. There's been a good report so far. We shall look at that. But they have left their first love. A sobering message for us tonight. It's a balanced scorecard that's written about the church at Ephesus. It's like what you might call in business circles a SWOT analysis. The strengths, the weaknesses of this church. They're laid bare before us. But the bit that really sticks in is verse 4 and 5. Nevertheless, despite all the good things, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Verse 5. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works. So this is very sobering. Just to remind you, the seven letters are not seven consecutive ages contorted into the whole of history. They are seven churches, which to describe what the whole church is like in different phases, but also what we're like. Each of the qualities and the deficiencies that we see in these seven churches they could be, and they probably are true, of some or most of us at different parts of our Christian life. We notice here in verse 2, chapter 2 and verse 2, as it says in the other letters, that the first two words, I know. Who's the one doing the assessment? It's Christ, who knows all things about your life, my life, and the life of this church, I know thy works. I know what you do and what you don't do. I know, he says. There's no secrets. Everything about this church and about your life is open and seen by the all-seeing eyes of Christ. I know. John is shown the relationship between the church and its saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that. But this letter is going to reveal to us the very real pitfalls that we could fall into, or maybe we have fallen into. 
Maybe some of the things that we're going to notice is where we're found tonight. And the Lord says to us, I know. I know where you are. I know what condition you're in as a church and as believers. And I know your potential to fall, to get sidetracked so easily from loving the Lord Jesus Christ. Getting drawn back, it seems to suggest, into old ways of thinking where the world's ways seem much easier than walking by faith. That seems to be what's happening to the church at Ephesus. They're beginning to believe the old lies, the lies that they are the source of blessing, that they are powerful and important, and that their ideas are what counts. It seems that across history, the conditions that we see here in the churches of Ephesus and Smyrna and etc., the other of the churches, they teach us one vital lesson. If you remember one thing tonight, if you are severed from the source of light and blessing, which is the stem of the candlestick, you will have no life, no fruit. No blessing. Well, let's look at Ephesus, the first of these churches. It's quite possible that the other six churches were church plants or daughter churches of Ephesus. It seems that the first letter written was written, as I said earlier, by John to the church that he knew most about. It was a church that was planted by Paul it was cared for by fellow labourers Priscilla and Aquila and then Apollos and then Timothy. This is a church that had many of those that we know so well. Paul would return to Ephesus for three years of ministry once the church had been established. And we see in this church that initially there was a great victory, a victory over the demonic powers that were witnessed in the great temple to Diana or Artemis, the same thing, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And when Paul went there, well, mighty, mighty things were done. If you turn to Acts chapter 19, it's worth us just reading the astonishing account of what happened at Ephesus during the ministry of Paul. If we just read from verse 11 to 20 and then also verse 35, Acts chapter 19, and God wrought, he did, special miracles by the hands of Paul at Ephesus, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them, then certain of the vagabond or wandering Jews, like travelling magicians, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure thee, we command you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew and a chief of the priests which did so, 
And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt upon, and overcame them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. That's what happens when fear, the right kind of fear, falls upon a people. Verse 18, And many that believed because fear fell upon them, came and confessed and showed their deeds. And many of them also which used curious arts, we might say black magic, brought their books together and burned them all before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. And just one verse, verse 35, perhaps 34 as well. But when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice, about the space of two hours, cried out in a chant, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not? How that the city of the Ephesians is a worshipper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter and so on. Well, remarkable. This church had been founded by Paul and then astonishing blessing breaks out as the name of the Lord is magnified. There's many references to the church at Ephesus, Paul would greet the Ephesian elders, a plurality of elders at Ephesus, and he would bid them farewell. He summoned them to be vigilant. He said, protect God's sheep from fierce wolves and false shepherds. Perhaps a reference to the Nicolaitans. Again, we'll come back to that. Writing from prison, in the letter to the, to the Ephesians, he would say that they were to keep the church in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, they were to pursue maturity. And this would enable them to stand firm against human cunning and craftiness of de deceitful schemes. Ephesians 5, 6, perhaps one final reference. Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. So picture Ephesus. Some of you have been there. An enormous temple. In that temple there is glittering marble. The sun would shine off it. It was quite a sight. The goddess Diana or Artemis was a big black Ugly, cow-shaped figure, nothing particularly attractive, supposedly had fallen from out of space. And there in that temple there were many eunuchs, prostitutes. There were many that sold their bodies for sordid things. It was said by one writer, the morality 
of Ephesus was worse than the morals of animals. Even dogs don't mutilate one another. Well, such is the scene that we see with Ephesus. There had been great blessing, many turning to Christ, such that there was a riot because the whole business of idol manufacturing was threatened. And yet, by probably AD 97, the time of Domitian, when this terrible persecution falls, as we shall see here, there are problems. Now, the formula for the seven letters is almost identical. You go through each letter, as we shall do, God willing, and you see in each of the seven letters, it's as though there's seven sections. Nothing's by accident in the word of God. There is a greeting. There is some way that Christ describes himself that's particularly relevant to that church, who he is in a very relevant way to the needs of that church. There's a commendation, something that they're doing well. It's always good, isn't it, to say to people what they're doing well. If you want them to listen to the difficult news, say something positive first, preferably more than one thing, as happens here. And then there's a condemnation. That's the fourth heading. A greeting, a self-designation, a commendation, an encouragement, and then a condemnation, something that they've got to really think about. And then there is counsel, wise counsel from Christ. There is a promise, sixthly. And then there's a plea, always at the end. He that hath an ear, let him hear. So that's the structure. We'll use those as our headings briefly tonight. Just one comment on the first. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. That's the greeting. Follows the same formula. Who is the angel? Well, it's the messenger, the pastor. Those that bring the light to that church. Notice that the pastor, those in office, they have the responsibility for the spiritual health of that church. And so, Christ writes to the one who has that responsibility, the angel of the church, the messenger, the one who's been put in a place of responsibility. And what's going to be delivered to that individual? He's got to teach it to the church, to warn them. Well, the second heading, Christ's self-designation. Here he is. He reveals himself to the church at Ephesus. These things, says he, Christ, that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. What's the relevance of that particular description of Christ? Well, the right hand... That's the position of authority and strength. Why does he mention that? Because there was an authority problem in the church in Ephesus. Men were rising up and thinking that the church was down to them. That the responsibility for blessing was down to them. Natural human thinking was coming in. They were beginning to forget that there's only any strength in a church 
when we're walking with the Lord, when we're connected to the, the stem of the candlestick. And if there is a turning to man's thinking, then the warning is that the candlestick will be snuffed out, taken away. They had forgotten who was in charge, where their power came from, forgotten that their ministry was not about works, 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 rotors, rotors, rotors. Their ministry was spiritual. There's only any movement in a soul, only ever deepening and growth in grace if the Lord does it. That seems to be why he mentions to them that the seven stars are in his right hand. He's the source of power and authority. And he walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. They're his church. Each individual local churches, but connected to the stem, which is Christ, the lampstand. Notice that the light is at the highest point in a lampstand. And the Puritans love to say, that the light in our lives should be at the highest point, the mind, where the truth enters and then it floods light into the body, they would say. The problem is, if we have a carnal mind, Romans 8, 6, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace and happiness well, that's what we need, a spiritual mind. But they had a danger of having a carnal mind to face the particular situation that they had at Ephesus, a mind that thought of itself, not of Christ and his glory. So that's the designation that's given here. What about the commendation, our third heading? This is what we'll spend a bit more time on. I know he says, as he says to all the churches, look at verse 9, the next church, I know, I know thy works, I know thy works. Everything is exposed. The all-seeing eye of God comes into the heart of this church, which is the heart of its members. That's what the Lord sees. I know thy works, the things that you do, your deeds. I know thy labour. Well, that's a good thing. It's a positive comment that he makes. I know your strenuous effort. That's what the word means. And then a third commendation, your patience, your endurance and perseverance in the midst of great difficulty. Well, this all sounds very positive, And it was. It was good. They had worked and laboured hard. They had persevered through the tribulations that are mentioned in chapter 1 and verse 9. Trials, tribulations, under demission. The Lord knew that. <coughs> he knew that they were enduring. I don't know whether you saw this week, some of us saw a video of a, a pastor up in Derbyshire. And that church has had access to three schools for years to take Bibles, to take services, but all of a sudden three schools have turned 
on this church and said because of their views that a man and a woman is the definition the Bible gives of marriage, that they can have nothing to do with that church anymore. And you know, I think this is a sign, one of many, that persecution and trials are beginning to start in this country. And we're going to see a lot more. And it's as though the Lord says to the church at Ephesus, I know, I know what you have to put up with. I know your difficulties, your endurance and patience. And look what it goes on to say. And how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Now this is a reference to those who came into the church. And evidently they were false teachers, false apostles. And they tested them. And this is a good thing. They tested to see what are they teaching? Do they teach what's right? Are they teaching that we stand by faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone, on the scriptures alone, and that everything we do is for God's glory alone? Or are they lifting up men? And are they adding something to the gospel? And quite rightly, these people at the church at Ephesus had said, let's test See if this is a false gospel. See if they're undermining God's word. And those who said they were apostles, they'd suss them out. They weren't. They were false teachers. Well, I think that's a reference probably to what it says in verse 6. This thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's strong, Christ Hating people? Well, he hated the Canaanites. In the book of Numbers, you can read how the Lord hated the Canaanites because they sacrificed children and mutilated their bodies. Well, that's what was happening, apparently. Something of that sort in the city of Ephesus. There were those who claimed to be believers, the Nicolaitans. We don't know exactly what they stood for. The words there seem to imply a power, a conquest, the first word Nico, and then Laetans, that's the word laity, the people, a power over the people. And it seems like they were developing a hierarchical structure in their teaching. Well, we see that in some churches today, people lording it over the people. That seems to be what that word means. It may have been named after a man called Nicholas, we don't know. But probably most of the commentators say it was about a conquest over the people. They were rising up and pushing the people down. Hierarchical church government. We shouldn't have that. We're all one. In Christ Jesus. Well they're being commended. Thou hast tried them. And found them. Verse 2. To be liars. They were not sincere. They were not genuine. And so. It's a commendation. That they have worked out. What is true. They'd searched the scriptures. In the way that Paul said of the Bereans. The Bereans who were more noble than those at Thessalonica because they examined the scriptures. 
Well, that's a good thing for us to search the scriptures and to test the spirits, test the preachers. It's right, you should test me every week. I hope with grace, respect, humility, knowing that we are but men, but if somebody teaches false things, a different gospel, we must identify it. So that's the commendation that's given to the church at Ephesus. But what about the condemnation? The condemnation. Verse 3, they've borne with patience. Again, they've laboured and they've fainted not. It's a... Uh, a further emphasis of what was said in verse 2. But here, verse 4, here is the problem. Nevertheless, oh, it's quite a pivot. I have somewhat, in italics, added in for explanation. I have something somewhat against thee. Because thou hast left thy first love. Those of you who are married tonight, do you remember your first love? you remember your husband, your wife? You couldn't stop thinking about them. They preoccupied, I hope they did, I hope they still do. They preoccupied your thinking, your first love. I think that's what it probably means, but maybe it means something else. Your highest priority. You have left off. You are leaving, you are departing, you have put behind you, or you've got the order wrong. You're no longer putting Christ first, his word, his glory, his honour. This is what he has against them. The suggestion is that they'd become orthodox, formal, legalistic. <clears throat> They were more concerned with the outward than the inward. Do you know that can happen in our churches? Could it be that we're more concerned about where somebody sits? Or what they're wearing? Or what they're not wearing? Or how they appear? We're more concerned about dotting the I's and crossing the T's? But we've lost our first love. Oh yes, doctrine's important. But sometimes the way it's expressed in different places, in cultural forms like clothing, varies. They had lost their first love. Their priority had changed. Love for Christ was no longer dominant in their thinking. That's what it seems to suggest. Thou hast left Thy first love, they've fallen from it. Everything used to centre upon Christ, but no longer. The first love of the church in Acts 19, the Ephesian church, was the risen Lord. And they lifted up only Christ, even if it caused a riot. They burned their books they put everything that wasn't of Christ, everything that was of the world behind them. And they were not afraid to offend those that made the idols for Diana. Their first priority 
was Christ. Now, could that be true of us? Could it be true of me? Could there be something that comes before? Some things that come before? Could there be a formalism? Could we go through the motions? Could we become legalistic? Let's just turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen by grace. Oh, we keep all the letters of the law. We look the part. We sit in the right seat. We do all the things that the Jews used to do. But we've fallen from grace. That's what Paul says to the church at Galatia. Christ is become powerless, of no effect, of no importance. He's lost his position in your life. Your sin is not felt. You don't have to get right with God through every hour of the day. You can go days without drawing near. Knowledge, seemingly, had become more important than love. Their motive, I know thy works, he says. They were still doing the same things. Evangelism, Sunday school. They were labouring. But maybe with the wrong motive. Their love, their heart, their engine. Their reason for doing what they were doing was for works sake. For righteousness, self-righteousness. That's legalism, isn't it? Ticking the box. And they'd fallen from where they were. Verse 5. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. You used to have Christ at the pinnacle of your life, the apex. But no more. Now the church has become cold, indifferent to the children, indifferent to those less privileged than we are, who haven't had the same upbringing that we've had, that don't know the hymn tunes, don't know where to find the scripture readings, and we're unconcerned. Thou hast fallen. And the council, we come to the fifth heading. Here's the council. It's very simple. Repent. Turn round. Get your priorities right. Christ First, second, third in your life. And do the first works like you did in Acts 19. Like you did turning the whole city upside down. Unconcerned about the consequences. If it was the right thing to do, repent, get back. Or, well, or. Or I will come quickly. Well, the sad thing is about Ephesus. Some of you have seen it. The church did not last very long. It's a pile of ruins now. There hasn't been a church there for hundreds and hundreds of years. Possibly as early as the 2nd, 3rd century. We don't know for sure. 
the church was no longer. The candlestick was removed. They didn't heed the warning. How important to us. Repent. What does that mean? Well, we know what it means when we come to the Lord the first time. We turn from sin. But it's the same. We need to leave behind the root of the problem. Carnal thinking. Me first. My opinion counts. I don't think that such and such should happen in the church. Oh, I haven't talked to the pastor or the officers. Well, it's my opinion. Carnal thinking. (coughs) Divisive thinking. We're a spiritual engine. We're a spiritual organization. Christ only has one body. He is the head. We're not to think in carnal ways, but spiritual ways. So we need a change of heart. Well, here's the promise. Verse 6 mentions, we've covered that, about the Nicolaitans. But here's the promise. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, and to him that overcomes. They can overcome. They can conquer their carnal thinking. They can turn back to Christ if they listen, if they hear, if they start thinking spiritually, not carnally. Well, how will that happen? It will happen because they hear what the Spirit says to the church. What does that mean? They allow their hearts To be driven by truth through the mind, the light coming into the body and the spirit moving the heart and then they will overcome. We don't like that word overcome. It rather implies that the trials and the difficulties will continue. They won't be taken away. But the suggestion is that the Lord will give the grace. He'll give the help, give the power to overcome. And here's the promise And we will be able to eat of the tree of life. The tree of life. The tree that's in the paradise of God. To eat of that tree we need to be in paradise. Where is paradise? It's where Christ is. It's where Christ rules. It's where there is no evil. There is no need for choice. Because all from this tree is good. I will give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. But we need to remain faithful. We need to remain with him. We need to be listening attentively to what the Spirit says to this church and to us and to this church here today. We are to hear. We are to listen. My sheep. Hear my voice. Those that don't hear are not sheep. They're wolves. The mark of somebody that's a born again person is they hear what the Spirit says. We hear because we've listened. Because we have an ear to hear what the Spirit says. We hear, we obey the instructions that we're given. These are the instructions for us tonight. May we not leave 
our first love. If we have, I'm sure that's true of all of us from time to time, we're to repent. What we do, we must do it for the right reasons. Don't go through the motions. Don't do it to be seen. Don't do it for honour. Do it because we do the first works for Christ. We do it out of love for him and for love for his honour and for his glory. May the Lord bless us.